Uh, we are in the third week of a series uh, on the troublesome prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Um, uh, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 17 this morning. Uh, the first week we, we talked a, a lot about the context, so if you, you missed the first week, I don't want to recap the whole thing, um, but we're, we're, dealing with a, we're dealing with a situation uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel, which is ruled by a group called the House of Omri, uh, a king named Ahab, whose wife Jezebel is a, uh, a Canaanite. Um, her father is uh, the king uh, of a Canaanite city. She worships Canaanite gods, and she is financing, personally financing, eight, the lifestyle of 850 prophets of the false god Baal uh, and Asherah. And uh, they're in the middle of a confrontation. Uh, the prophet of God, the man of God, Elijah, has appeared and said that there was uh, not going to be rain on the land until he said so. And then he disappears. And last week we, we were in chapter 18 when he brings the rain three years later, three years, six months later. Um, but we wanna, I want to rewind and I want to go back to chapter 17. Um, and a, a situation that was significant enough in the Old Testament that Jesus specifically cites this particular moment in 1 Corinthians, uh, or 1 Kings 17, when he is delivering his first sermon uh, in the city of, uh, of Capernaum, um, he, and he makes reference to this, and that's in Luke chapter 4, um, he says, and he makes reference to it in, in the light of uh, what we're going to talk about today, um, a situation that happens. Um, so we're in Exodus chapter, or we're in 1 Kings. Boy, I am having trouble naming the right book. Um, 1 Kings 17. Um, and the, the scenario is this. Uh, Elijah has appeared to the king. He's told him there's not going to be any rain. Then Elijah goes off and he's hidden um, in a, a river valley, a, a, a creek valley, really. Um, the, the, by, the river, uh, by the river Brook Cherith, um, which is a tributary of, um, of the Jordan. He, is, he hides there until the water dries up. And then in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 8, the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, and said, uh, Go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in her hand. Now it turns out she's preparing her last meal for her son and her, uh, they are going to eat and then they're going to die. Elijah asks her to feed him first, she does, and the the flour that she has and the oil that she has is going to last for the entire time that Elijah is with her, probably a couple of years. So this is a, a miraculous moment. Uh, um, uh, verse 16, the flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. But chapter, verse 17 is really where we're going to start today. After this, and we don't know how long after, but after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. In other words, he died. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? 
You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times. Elijah does a lot of things three times. And cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, delivered him to his mother. Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Join me in a word of prayer real quick. Father, we come to your word once again, believing that it is truth. Lord, may we see in these written words the promises of the living word, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be um, transformed and renewed and encouraged and directed and led and cared for by your spirit as we spend time reflecting on your word. We pray this, Father, in the name of Jesus, by your Spirit. Amen. Now, Zarephath, or uh, Sarepta, is uh, uh, one of the main towns of coastal Canaan. Um, there, most people, if you, you had to go through ancient history, if you took ancient history um, in college or, or you read a little bit of it, people know about the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Um, and those are very prominent cities, and they're still presently... Uh, occupied cities. Tyre is one of the, the longest continuously occupied cities in the world. Um, but because they're occupied cities, we don't really have a lot of archaeology um, being done in those cities because, you know, people live there and they don't appreciate it when you dig up their house. Um, so, uh, but Sarepta or Zarephath has actually been, been uh, excavated quite extensively. It's not an inhabited area now. Um, they found the village, they've, they've found the area that, that this, these events would have occurred in, um, and, uh, and they've been doing digs in there since the 70s, and, um, and uh, it's, it's actually, the, the village is actually in the middle of a wheat field, and when, they, when the archaeologists first got there, they wanted to lease the land from the farmer, and he could not, because of the language barrier, understand why they didn't want the wheat um, and there was this long debate. It took like a year for them to actually get the, the land so they could do the dig. Well, they've dug through and they've found that there are a few interesting things about this town. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about this town is it apparently never had a permanent wall like most cities have. Um, it, it had some defenses, but it, it didn't really have a, a, a wall wall. And there are absolutely no destruction layers in this city. Um, so, so what that means from an archaeological point of view, what that means is this was a city that was never conquered. Um, now, that could have been because nobody wanted to conquer it, which is very possible. Um, it could also have been uh, that the, the, uh, the MO of the people that lived in this city was when the, when the, time, when the going got rough, the, the you know, going got tough, the tough got going, and they just left. And this may be an indication of what's happening here. 
Um, they're in the middle of a drought, and, uh, and Elijah is sent to the city, and the first person he encounters in the gate of the city is a widow gathering sticks to make a fire to eat her last meal. Now, if you know anything about the ancient world, generally speaking, the gates of the city during the day, that's where all the elders and all the, all the senior people of the city would be found. That was basically town hall. The fact that when Elijah shows up, the only person that's in the gate of the city is this woman gathering sticks indicates that she may be one of or the only person left in this city. Um, that everybody else has left. Uh, everybody else has gone and tried to found, find fairer pastures and she is there. And she's gathering this food to, to feed her child. Well, this tells us that she really takes her, her parental role extremely seriously. Um, the indication from the language that used, although it's not absolute, the way that it's described in verse 17, um, that the son of the woman became ill and his illness was severe that no breath was left in him, it's, it's possible, and I'm not saying this is absolute, but the way that it's described, the language being used, it's possible that he may have had something like um, epilepsy or um, some kind of, some kind of uh, 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 situation that made it impossible for him uh, to be able to be independent, and so she's taking care of him, and that he actually dies from the consequences of that disease. Now, I can't, I can't say for sure that that's what's happening. That's only, it's only a very vague possibility. She may, he may have just gotten sick and died. That, that's also very possible. But the way that she's caring for him, the way that she doesn't move him, the, the way that they're still in the city, it kind of indicates that maybe this wasn't the strongest kid in the world. Um, and he is described as a child. He's not described as a, as a teen. There are different Hebrew words for somebody who is a small child and somebody who is a grown child. And, and so she is, he, he's, he's dependent upon her. And the scriptures say that she dies, and her, or he dies, and her response in verse 18 is, what have you against me, O man of God? Now, that might sound weird to us, but it's not all that weird from the perspective of uh, early Iron Age Canaanite culture. Because in, a, in, a, in this culture, what we know about their religion, there was always a quid pro quo with their gods. So if you got prosperity from their gods, if their gods took care of you, there was always a price to be paid. There was always something that the gods would take from you if you received something from them. So there was never God giving something out of the goodness of his heart. Baal never gave out of the goodness of his heart. There was always a price. There was always a consequence. In fact, we know from other uh, sites that uh, what was very common with the Baal was that a Baal would have a wife. She would be one of the women, one of the young girls of a, the village, and she would be specifically chosen to be his wife. Um, and she had a special place and special clothes and all this stuff. And she lived as his wife. She was the price of Baal's um, uh, taking care of the city, providing for them. And when things started to get bad, he was probably bored with her. And so it was time for her to go marry somebody else. And they would get a new girl that would come in and take that role. Um, and that sounds really weird to us, but that was how their religion works. And so when she says to Elijah, what have I done? What have you against me, O man of God? And she doesn't use the covenant name of God. She calls him a God-man, like the man who works for a God. 
all right? Um, and she says, what do you have against me that you would take my son? That to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. Now, that's a weird statement. It's an odd statement. Um, she's a widow. If I were to read between the lines that statement that you would make my sin to remembrance, it's possibly that this son is not the child of her past husband, right? That this is a... This is a child born outside of that bond. Remembrance of me, because remember, there's a quid pro quo. For God to take care of, the gods to take care of you, you have to lose something, all right? And so for the gods to forgive you, sometimes you have to lose the thing that you need forgiveness for. There's, there's a complicated relationship here. And her response to this is, you've caused the death of my son. My, you brought my sins to remembrance. I thought this was all past. I never asked you to come here. I never asked you to, 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 to depend on me. So why would you take my son? And I think that's a very good question. I think that's a great question from her. Because she is asking a question. I've lost everything. I stayed here. I'm only alive because you showed up and you're miraculously providing for us. I was content to lay down and die with my son. We would have both laid down and died together. and We would have had the cease of the struggles. And instead you showed up and you tease us with this miracle and you provide for us. And now my son dies. What's the deal, man of God? What is going on with this? Why would you mess with me like this? The widow assumes that her son dies because the messenger of God required it in return for his provision. Now, this puts Elijah in a curious position. If Elijah were a less compassionate person than he actually was, he would have looked at her and go, ah, he was dying anyway. Such is life. Moving on. How about some bread? He could have been insensitive to her. But here's the extraordinary moment. All right, We don't know how long Elijah has been living in this household, but probably since he is a man of God and a prophet, he's literate, and I imagine in my mind that he takes his time with this kid. He's been teaching this kid. He's been connecting with this kid. He knows this kid. Maybe this kid reminds him a little of himself. We don't know Elijah's story, except remember, he's nobody from nowhere. And maybe he finds a little bit of a home here in this Canaanite city with this Canaanite widow and her son. And now the son is gone. And so when he says this, when he says in verse 19, give me your son. I think in Elijah's mind, he had no idea what he was about to do. All he knows is, this can't be right. This, this can't be. And so he asks her to give him her son. Now, she just told him that he's, she believes he took her son from her. So think about the step of faith that this woman has to make to give to the one she blames for taking the son, to give her son to the person she blames for taking her son. Willingly surrendering him to the one she thinks caused his death. 
Now, if that's not a foreshadowing of our relationship with Christ, who calls us to die to live, I don't know what is. But she says, she hands her son over. Now, now this is where my, my imagination goes wild because I picture this woman laying on the, sitting on the ground holding this, ba- this boy who, who knows his situation and Elijah saying, hand him, give him to me, give him to me. And she holds him out and he picks the kid up and I, and I just picture this weak child because, you know, I think that in my mind he's, he's been disease, sick for a long time and Elijah picks him up and puts him in his arms and walks, up the, walks into the house and up the stairs into the upper room, uh, which is the, um, the guest area of most Canaanite houses. He takes him and he lays the child on his own bed. Why? Because it's the only bed that's there. This is Elijah's bedroll. This is what he carries with him. This is, his, this is basically all Elijah possesses is the clothes on his back and his bedroll. He's been run out of town He's been in hiding for forever, and he has this boy, and he lays him on the ground, and I would love to have a conversation with Elijah where I go, why did you decide to do what you did? He stretches himself out over the child three times. Now, we tend to think of this as like, like, he, he like the baby, kid's laying there, and he like lays over the kid. This is more of the, 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 the figuring of the stretching himself out three times. Is if you ever watch... Um, ever watched... Uh, 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 Muslims pray, they rock forward, the, the thing. If you've, ever been to the, if you've ever been to the Wailing Wall or you've seen pictures of the Wailing Wall, you see the, the rabbis, they're praying like this. Um, this is, that's called stretching forward. So he sits down and he prays over this young man three times. And he repeats, I think he repeats, the reason that we have this, he prays this prayer three times. He says, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Three times. Again, Elijah uses the number three an awful lot. And the number three seems to, if you read through scriptures, every once in a while the number three seems to pop up in moments of resurrection. It's almost like they knew what was coming because Jesus was in the tomb for three days and three nights. He prays over him three times. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Now that line is going to become important next week when Elijah is trying to listen for the voice of God. So just file that one away. But the scriptures say that God listened to the voice of Elijah. That's significant also for last week. We talked about last week about when Elijah faced the prophets of Baal and their gods weren't listening. And Baal says, or Elijah says, maybe he's busy. Maybe he's off doing something. Maybe he's off hunting. Yell louder. And they're screaming and everything. But when Elijah prays, right? When Elijah prays, God hears. And next week, we're going to talk about when God talks, whether Elijah hears. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. The nefesh, the the life-giving thing, that's the Hebrew word there. Um, It's just what they use to describe that which makes someone alive. People who breathe have the nefesh. All right? 
Um, and the life enters the child again. And I picture, I actually think that Elijah's as surprised by this happening as everybody else. I, don't, I think it, Elijah kind of has a moment and goes, whoa, that worked. <laughs> like, like, because it's not like there's a manual for resurrecting widow's children. He's just doing what he thinks God wants him to do. He's, he's praying a prayer. He's praying it repeatedly. He's believing that God is going to take care of him because, because God specifically brought him to this place. And Elijah's job is not to, to, his job is not to bring death. His job is to bring life. And, and sure, death is required, but what did this child ever do to deserve this? And so Elijah goes, well, this, this can't be right. This, this can't be right. And so he prays to God because this can't be right. And the significance of what he prays, and I would leave you to that, how he prays this prayer, rather than saying, you know, God, make this happen, but rather asking for God to permissively and gracefully let this child's life come into him again. And, and in this, this narrative, last week we talked about Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, being depicted as the, the, uh, the storm God, having power over Baal, that Baal, Baal's job is to bring rain, and, and, and they meet at a strong point of Baal's power at Mount Carmel, and Yahweh proves himself superior to Baal. Well, here he proves himself superior to the God of death. Here, Yahweh proves that he both gives and takes life. It is his to possess. It is his to give. It is his to take. And Elijah needs to learn this lesson because next week, his life will be in danger. See, the point of this moment, as hard as it is for us to understand, the point of this widow's son dying when he does, the way he does, the point of the woman saying what she says to him is not for her, it's for Elijah. Because up until this point, the only thing that we know that God has given Elijah is a message he didn't want to give to a king, food from ravens, and a room in a widow's house. God hasn't done anything truly extraordinary other than cause a drought. But if you know anything about the Middle East, you know that droughts are not that uncommon. Now Elijah sees God do something that only God can do. That goes counter to the behavior of the Canaanite gods. Canaanite gods don't give things back. Once you give it to them, it's theirs until they're tired of it. And then you get an old used-up shell of what used to be. Canaanite gods do things on whims. Canaanite gods do things without rhyme or reason. Canaanite gods never give things back. Yahweh gives back the most precious thing this woman had. And I'm sure that she was excited that that happened. And she even says, now I know that you're, the word of the Lord for your mouth is truth. But Elijah needs this. He doesn't even know he needs it. As far as Elijah knows, he's going to march back into Israel in a couple years or a couple months or however long it was, tell Ahab that God has taken care, taken care of the matter and all this stuff. Elijah can't know that in chapter 19, Jezebel will try to kill him. 
Elijah can't know that what he is doing is going to be a matter of life and death. Elijah can't know that all of Israel blames him for their suffering. Elijah doesn't know what God is putting in front of him, what God is calling him to. And so God prepares him. And, and I, I don't, I want to just kind of break this down for us. And we, again, we are not called to the role that Elijah was called to, but I think there's significance to this for us. Because I think that sometimes God is teaching us in the things that we think are for other people. We, we get put in a position, I always tell people, I was like, you want to know, you want to know, you want to know a, a piece of information or a, a field of study or something like that, the only way to truly know it is to teach it. Because in teaching, you actually learn, right? I mean, as a teacher, as somebody who actually has the word teach in his job description, all right, I can tell you that most of what I've learned, I've learned because I was teaching it not because I was in a class learning it. Because nobody pays attention in classes, even in seminary. All right? And for Elijah, right, his care for the widow, his, his devotion to this son is what teaches Elijah something about the God he serves. That, that what he does for someone else actually prepares him to be the man he needs to be. Elijah in, in 1 Kings 19, 18 is not the Elijah that appears in 1 Kings 17 because of this particular moment. Now he's not perfect, and we'll get to that in chapter 19, but he is transformed by his service to others, by his devotion to the needs of someone else. And, and I would remind you as well, as a corollary to this, that when you are devoted only to meeting your own needs, you will never grow beyond your own wants. As long as, Elijah, as long as Elijah's trip in Zarephath was only about him being fed until it was an opportunity for him to go back and visit uh, Ahab, he was not going to grow to be the man he needed to be. But when he gets to a point where he is confronted with a life and death situation and serves this woman who has been serving him, he rises to the level God needs him to be at, wants him to be at, has called him to be at, to confront a king. And so sometimes the best preparation in the world to be a better you is to serve others. Sometimes the best place you can be in order to minister as, as God has gifted you is to actually be ministering. Elijah could have sat in Zarephath and gone, well, that's unfortunate, but I have to go meet Ahab. And he would have been unprepared. He would not have been ready to do what God had called him to do. And more importantly, he would not have heard the voice of God. And others would not be able to give him credit for being the voice of God. 
Now, I'm going to leave you a little interpretational fragment here for you to chase if you want. There's an interesting parallel between Elijah and the widow in Zarephath and Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And that's just a little thing you can kind of play around with and see how John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, draws some imagery from this moment. Not everything, it's not a complete analogy, but he definitely draws some connections, particularly the relationship of the man of God and a woman in need and how God provides and how Christ is the fulfillment of everything. I'll let you write that sermon. She says in verse 24, Now I know that you are a man of God. You know, this phrase doesn't get used an awful lot. Moses is called a man of God. Uh, Occasionally a prophet who confronts a king is called a man of God. This is one of the only moments where someone says, now I know you are a man of God. Now I know that what you're saying, the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? And I'll just throw out one, and i got a lot of theories about this one. This is one that could go in 87 different directions. Jesus actually talks about this in Luke 4. I started with that. Jesus goes, um, and he preaches, and people don't hear him. They want him to do miracles. They're really impressed with him. And he actually says a prophet is of no, has no, uh, is, is of, uh, let, me, let me read it properly, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to botch it. I hate it when people do that. Let me paraphrase Jesus. No, let's go ahead and quote him. All right, 426. Um, Jesus says, uh, they, they, uh, verse, verse 23, um, it's actually Nazareth, not Capernaum. I don't know why I said Capernaum. They said, is this not Joseph's son? Verse 23, Jesus said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Um, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Truth I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. They get really mad at him and they want to kill him over this. It is one thing to say the word of the Lord in a place where everybody is listening to the word of the Lord, waiting for the word of the Lord. It is another thing for somebody to say, I understand that the word of the Lord is truth in a Canaanite city, in Jezebel's backyard. It's extraordinary that at this moment, God chooses to showcase his power and resurrect someone as far away from the centers of power of Israel as he can get to demonstrate just how powerful he is and just how wrong the priorities of those who think they know how God works, how wrong they are. Elijah goes to Zarephath to become the man that he needs to be to go to Mount Carmel. God raises a child at Zarephath for Elijah's benefit, but also so that he could be acclaimed as the truth by somebody who had absolutely no agenda whatsoever to verify his truth. 
And this is an extraordinary example of God turning the world upside down to show us just how wrong it really is. The law honors widows, but men forget about them. Abandon her. She's all alone. The law says to provide for the fatherless child, but the only one that can provide for the fatherless child is the penniless prophet. The breath of God makes us alive. And the life that God restores is the life of the child of a Canaanite widow. Not a king, not a priest. And that's where his truth is. You say, what's the point? I'll leave for that for you to decide. But I think it says an awful lot about God's priorities and our priorities and what God uses and what we think should be used and where God works as opposed to where we think he should. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we are not prophets to stand against kings and declare droughts. We're just men and women, boys and girls, trying our best to follow you in a crazy world. Help us to serve one another, to demonstrate love and compassion, to be messengers of the truth of your word. May we, your church, exemplify your heart. May we bring life where we go. May we bring truth where we go. May we bring hope where we go. We pray this in Jesus' name.